complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies. Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. Oh, is that um, <laughs> Lagavulin? In a can? <laughs> okay. No, no, no. This is my drink of choice tonight on my, my, on my travels. This is Kettle House Brewing. Mm. Hellgate Honey Hefeweizen. It's fantastic. Well, for episode two, we are drinking The Widow's Kiss. Seems a bit heavy, um, but we're recording a little bit earlier than usual this week, so I kind of had to spur the moment, find a cocktail that I had ingredients for, and this fit my need. So The Widow's Kiss was first presented in a book called The Modern American Drinks. It was printed in 1885. So this is a very old cocktail. The same kind of time period as the old-fashioned, as featured last week. I specifically found this cocktail in a lovely book called Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktails. And he does a really good job highlighting a lot of these cocktails that just kind of vanished off the face of the earth for a while. And so with that being the case, there's not a lot of history that's known about some of these cocktails, only that drinks with herbal liqueurs, which this one has two of them, kind of just started to fall out of fashion for whatever reason in about the 1930s. And so a lot of these drinks just, like I said, poof, vanished. But I do want to go a little bit over the ingredients uh, and give you a little bit of history because there's some very cool Um, liqueurs in this drink tonight so the widow's kiss is one and a half ounces of calvados that's a apple brandy from france it has three quarters ounces of green chartreuse three quarters ounce of benedictine and then a few dashes of aromatic bitters it's stirred over ice and strained into a glass and garnished with the cherry let's talk about where some of these liqueurs came from. So the green chartreuse is pretty interesting because it's a very, very old liqueur. Its first known recording is from 1605, and that's because a lot of these liqueurs were either medicinal, so uh, doctors, alchemists would make these as some sort of cure, and herbal liqueurs, more so than like fruit liqueurs, and other types of liquors can be stored indefinitely. So it was a really good way to make a delicious drink that would keep for essentially ever. What's really cool about the green chartreuse is that it was made and is still made by monks from the Chartreuse Mountains in France. So this monastery owns a distillery and they make green chartreuse. It's their own secret recipe that's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old has 130 different herbs, flowers, and plants in it. No one knows what they all are. It's this kind of crazy, magical uh, production. It's, it's wild. And as far as the uh, Benedictine goes, it's even older 
The first recording was again from a monk who was a self-proclaimed alchemist, and he had a little book of 200 different recipes, medicinal, all sorts of things like that, you know, medicines, drinks, tinctures, and it's from 1510. That's pretty stinking old, but it actually kind of ended up being lost again, right? This recipe, it was just something that the monks made. He specifically designed this drink to help revitalize the tired monks. So it had a medicinal use. But when the French Revolution came around, the monks were forced to flee their monastery and all of their tomes and books were seized. It wasn't until 1860 that some merchant family was going through their collection of basically stolen information from the French Revolution that he found this tome and he ended up producing this product. And so even though it originates from monks, it's no longer produced by monks. But it's pretty cool. It's a very, very old history. And so a lot of these cocktails that we'll present down the road are going to have some of these liqueurs that are hundreds of years old, but didn't really find a recreational use until much later. I have respect for it because it survived the French Revolution. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Not many things did that. So, so cheers. Including France as an empire. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so this is important. But it's nuts. A lot of these, I mean, chartreuse, there's also a yellow chartreuse. It's kind of the same idea. It's a little more mellow. There's Borrelio, Fernet. There's all of these herbal liqueurs that I'm sure we'll touch base on. They, they've got, you know, in quote, secret recipes. And there's just, it's just all of these herbs thrown together. And they're all mm. ancient recipes. They all were used for medicine at one point. And then now, obviously, it's strictly recreational. Now, are there different producers that sort of have their own, like, variation that they create? If no one knows what the true yes, like, collection of exactly. herbs and spices are, are there right. different versions of it? Right. Um, there are a lot of people that produce something like Fernet, and I'm sure it has some old original you know, manuscript that has some recorded recipe for it. Mm. But just like gins, everything like that, there's kind of a standard number of ingredients that it has to have to be considered a gin. Mm. And then anything beyond that is kind of distiller's flair. But a lot of these specific liqueurs are just one of a kind, like creme de violette, Benedictine, the chartreuses. There's probably more that I, I can't even recall right now. Uh, there's Chenard, which is made out of artichokes. Um, just mm. all the crazy stuff. They're very, very, very niche. And then a lot of the bigger distillers now own them, but they still have those original recipes. I think Benedictine's owned by the Bacardi Collective or whatever their their organization is. So the same Bacardi rum that everyone's pounding makes this beautiful French <laughs> liqueur, which is still made in France. Green Chartreuse is one of my absolute favorite liqueurs. It's so delicious. It's got kind of this sweet licorice -y feeling to it. But yeah, it's not really like it's Kat, I'm curious for you to describe the flavor of this drink. Oh, let me take a sip. 
there's something sort of floral and almost like aromatic about it. I would say it like gets very bright and kind of opens in your mouth, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it's very sharp and sort of bitter at first. And then it kind of finishes with this like sweet sort of almost like it's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of like coats your mouth in this sweet aftertaste. And the coating, I wonder if that stems from the fact that Benedictine Ah. is 27 herbs sweetened with honey. Oh, yeah. So what makes it sweet is the honey. So it's thick, syrupy. Mm -hmm. Um, All I know is is that it has honey and saffron in it. So I love that it has saffron in it. I didn't quite pick up on the right. saffron I, notes. I'm, I have a feeling it's <laughs> but, it's for the color. The color, yeah, the That's color is quite pretty, especially with the cherry garnish. It's sort of this like this very like warm golden yellow, and then with the cherry garnish, it kind of has this like pinkish, almost orangey hue in the center. Nice, and it sounds like the flavor description you're giving it. It sounds like it's aptly named, like. Stephen introduced (laughs) the name as the widow's kiss and it's so, you know, you think of a widow being a bitter either with anger or grief, but it's still a kiss, right? It's still sweet by the end of it. There's, there's like a, a a bittersweet to who interesting. I like it. So aptly named. (laughs) It's beautiful. Something to sip on. Yes, it's right. definitely a slow drinker, yeah. which is great. And maybe no more than one, I would say. Yeah, it's a it's definitely syrupy. Did you mention is it served with ice or no? No, it is served in a chilled glass. And you so, stir with ice. Stir with ice, correct. Okay. I did uh, to be honest, see a couple recipes as I was searching them. Some say that you end up shaking this, some say stir. I tend to go with if it doesn't have citrus, I stir it. If it has citrus, shake it. That's just kind of a general rule. Mm, okay, what, I like what's it. Thinking behind that, like the way the the acid. I don't know with it. fully what the reason to shake it if it has citrus is, but I do know that a lot of the drinks that don't have any citrus have really delicate liqueurs, mm. things like vermouth. And if you shake them, it actually disrupts the molecular formation of like the fortified wines and things like that. Mm. And so what would be like a really silky, smooth drink ends up getting chopped up and you kind of get a flat taste. And it's hard to explain, but the best way that you can really tell is order a martini shaken or make it at home. Shake a martini over ice and then try it versus a martini that's just stirred. So much better. Just stirred. Well, I think we left off last episode. You guys both kind of put the smack down on me for not necessarily (laughs) caring about political conversations. But ultimately, that all stemmed from a question that Stephen posed following our discussion of our brief, in no way conclusive discussion of objective truth and how we subjectively encounter it. Stephen, your question posed to us that I ended up monopolizing was how do you filter the information available to you 
in order to accurately decipher the world and then act in what you believe to be the most appropriate way. So that's kind of the question that I want to leave open to Kat to kind of recover here. Right on. Yeah. We've sort of talked about this a little bit before off air, but we were thinking that I think it's fair to say that there are sort of certain brands of truth in our modern society, unfortunately, Mm. (laughs) which kind of gets at what we were talking about last week, that it's sort of hard to pinpoint what objective truth is, that we, we sort of all agreed that we do think it exists, but being able to ascertain exactly what it is and get some sort of consensus amongst a large populace of people is difficult. And as it relates to sort of politics, I'd say that we live in such like a hyper-partisan time that our public discourse has really like devolved to a point where there is no longer like a starting point of objective truth. There's no, we don't start with a certain set of facts that we all agree upon. And then we sort of diverge over, you know, sort of specific policy proposals or, or details of a tax code or something like that. There's just fundamentally, we can't agree on the facts anymore. And I think Sadly, like depending on the media outlets that you choose to get your information from, you can have an entirely different understanding of what's occurred, whatever is being reported on, depending if you're getting it from, you know, the New York Times or or Fox News, (laughs) or perhaps I should say MSNBC or Fox News are kind of like good standards of, you know, right and left in the media world today. Um, I mean, you can have like the USPS quote unquote scandal, I think is a perfect example of this, where depending on where you get your news, USPS is either like under attack by a rogue president who's hoping to undermine vote by mail by removing USPS drop boxes and like cutting funding. Never mind the fact that USPS is supposed to be, doesn't actually depend on regular congressional appropriations, but is actually supposed to be financially self-sustaining. But we can leave that detail aside. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if you get your news from a more conservative outlet, you would think that the USPS is under a new postmaster general who's just implementing structural and operational changes that the agency is in dire need of in order to become financially solvent. So, (laughs) and those are two very extreme that's an extreme divergence of, and, and where do you, how do you ascertain, like, what's the reality there? And so I think that's when we, last week, we sort of posed the question, like, how exactly do you try to discern truth? And if we're staying in sort of the political arena, I think one really important thing to keep in mind is, is trying to, like, look beyond narratives to determine facts. And I think that's where incentives come in to play. And I think it's important to ask, like, what's the motivation behind the story that I'm reading? And you can take that to a granular level and ask, you know, what's the motivation of person A, person B, the journalist, the publisher, and so on. And I think if you can take the time to sort of think that through and sit on that for a bit, by understanding the incentives facing different actors, you can help, you can, you can better understand, like, why they're sharing the story in the particular way that they are. Yeah, the man, the post office thing is such an interesting example too. The way you framed that was so perfect to me. What I'm curious about though is how how far away I mean, like do you think that there's a there's a fact 
about what's happening, but it seems like what we're already being presented with on Fox News versus MSNBC, it's it's already been applied through multiple people's filters, whether those be chosen or a priori, like they were also just handed those filters. But like that, this is another example of kind of where we were in our discussion last week was how close can we get to the source to actually get the uh, the the factual recounting of the story or he said, she said kind of thing. Yeah. What, what do you keep an eye out for when dealing with that? Like I said, I think trying to understand the motives, which of course you can't get in the hearts and minds of random people, but mm. <laughs> I think sort of trying to understand the political motivations. And also I think under having like a, a grasp on sort of historical context and also just like how does the USPS actually function? How is it funded? You know, what is, how is the postmaster elected? Oh, he's elected by a board of governors that are bipartisan. And this particular postmaster general was voted unanimously by Democrats and Republicans. Like there's just sort of details like that, like the nuance of these stories Mm. that is often completely brushed over because it doesn't fit whatever the narrative is that's trying to be, um, you know, shared. Yeah, so this is one of those examples where they already have something to say and they're looking to ham-fistedly force any event they can find to fit the predetermined narrative that their network or their bosses are looking to have come across their desk. Yeah, and I think I think sort of in keeping with the the idea of looking at incentives, it goes beyond just like you know, one editor's political bias. But I think, you know, the idea that sort of the clickbait revolution, right? And and thinking of, you know, these stations are trying to maintain relevancy and they're trying to garner audiences. And a scandal every 24 hours is sort of seems to be what they need in order to to, you know, get people to click through their stories and turn on, you know, their evening news program. And so I think a lot of things are like I said, the nuance is overlooked because it doesn't make for as simple of a story. It sort of complicates things and it it makes it fuzzy. I'm curious to hear from you, Stephen. What are you thinking here? As someone that often describes themselves as politically destitute, it's Wait, really ugh, define that for me real quick. Okay, so <laughs> especially this whole last week after i've really reflected on the little uh speech that i gave you and after listening to some podcasts and listening to some interesting perspectives on voting and whether you should vote or not vote or if you don't vote that's bad i've kind of actually had a i'm going to have to step back and really process my opinion on where i was even a week ago Mm. Very interesting. Say more, please. I'm so curious. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. You know, I, I, I believe last week was pretty adamant about. Okay, so here is what I think you should do if you're not in a position to be able to ignore uh, politics. But after some reflection, and like I said, reading a couple very good pieces by some people that I'm fairly influenced by Mm. i definitely need to step back and specifically one piece was about 
why this individual has decided not to vote in this election. He is a uh, very devout, outstanding Christian. And he made a very compelling argument that said, I will not stand for what I perceive as evil. And in the current system, I perceive both candidates as morally evil. And so it's not, I, I cannot with a clean conscience vote for a lesser evil. And so through whatever or whoever or whichever candidate is elected, I am going to live my life unchangingly. I will be who I am as a Christian first, and then whoever is in office is who is in office. And mm. the way he wrote it, it was very compelling, and it really had me need to step back and kind of reconsider. So define for me what you meant by politically destitute. Is that kind of getting at it? Like you don't, you, because you don't fit in what is typically billed as the political game? Correct. Okay. I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat. Even though I would say I'm libertarian, there's not really a libertarian party in America, right? I mean, truly. It's a, it's a pretty sad excuse for a political party. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then even, even since last week, I was just telling my roommate that this last night, I was listening to some podcasts on like hyper individualism and some of the, the negatives of that. And it really made me start to question, okay, well, you have to be really careful with libertarianism because of its tendency to lead to hyper-individualism. So finding that balance between, well, we are a country, we're all citizens of the country, you know, how, how does your individual freedoms, your individuality, your pursuits for whatever you want, how does that play into a bigger picture? And so since not even last, it hasn't even been a week, guys. And I have seriously had a big <laughs> questioning moment. So I'm really excited to pursue this more. And hopefully I'll be able to present a better position because I also listened back to my little monologue and like yesterday after I kind of had all these revolutions and I was like, I kind of felt like my little speech was kind of like a weird ideologue. <laughs> I felt like I was just like preaching at Henning. So this is just interesting. And so I've had a little bit of a development, even in a week. Hmm. It might change back next week. We'll see. I think not voting, though, is that's an act of, of sort of political awareness. And, and that's action, I think, on, on your, you know, whatever right? your convictions are. Well, but here's a great example, too. My roommate has made an excellent argument for not voting in the last election being an act of moral cowardice, which is a very strong statement. Mm -hmm. But I also, there's a lot of merit in what he was saying. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of compelling arguments for both sides that I'm kind of been trying to weigh. So there, this is the crux of it though, Stephen, is there's compelling, right. compelling arguments on both sides. So how do you right. filter <laughs> down to how it makes you act? Exactly. So this is, this is very important. And we're kind of getting off of track off track from what we were talking about a minute ago but it's very very difficult because now i'm in this position where i realize that this is truly a subjective endeavor or at least mm -hmm. i feel right now like it's a subjective endeavor 
I can only listen to the opinions of people that I have some respect for and try not to believe what I want to believe. And that's something that I really have to be careful of because truly I want to believe that like the libertarian way of thinking, like it is me and everyone needs to pursue like their own individual liberties and that leads to flourishing. I want to believe that. Now that very much may be true. That might be where I end up leaning more towards, which I have in the past. But I need I'm trying to be open to potentially tweaking that. I think that approach is exactly how you get closer anyway. Correct. To now, understanding truth. Yes. And this leads though into me being politically destitute, kind of where I was going with that originally. Mm. The fact that I feel so politically destitute means that even though I have a leaning towards libertarian-minded people, I predominantly consume that perspective. However, I make a deliberate attempt to consume even the most, what I would consider grotesque forms of journalism and things like that. I am always making sure that at least a portion of what I'm taking in is from perspectives that I would consider to be objectively wrong or people that I would consider to be morally vile people that I think are deliberately lying. But I think that's very important because like you were saying with this hyper partisan world, I would love to be able to dive into like the Twitter feed or the YouTube feed or the Instagram feed of somebody that is hardcore Democrat or hardcore Republican. Because from everything that I can tell, their feed of information is so specific and tailor-made that nothing gets into their bubble except for what they think is true. Mm. And we talk about like, you know, being in this information bubble, but I think it's way more extreme than I can really fathom, especially among like mainstream journalists. A lot of these stories that bounce around, one journalist gets the drop and makes this article, writes the story, and then all of these journalists follow the same journalists and they see this headline and they decide to make a story on the same thing. The next person makes a story on the same thing. And then you get this telephone game of journalism that all stem from one person because this bubble of journalists don't see anything outside of their little, their little sphere. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook.com slash WhiskeyBenchPod for Android users. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And I think they're all likely facing similar incentives or they're motivated in the same way like right. there's a shared goal exactly. right and exactly. yeah so and anything that counters that doesn't immediately serve that goal is explicitly ignored right. <laughs> or you know um so my point being i think a key aspect of trying to better understand the world is making sure that you consume yeah 
that you maybe even are fervently against. Because it's very important that you check yourself. It is a very, I think, dangerous and arrogant thing to just automatically assume that you are correct in all of your thinking. And I think that's where we're at in general. People might not claim that, but people get so worked up about things because I think subconsciously they have that mindset that they are, you know, unwaveringly correct in their thinking. And that leads to a lot of turmoil. Yeah. And I think where things get, I think where things get scary then is, you know, it's like they've built this precariously tall Jenga tower and you're reaching for a peg on the bottom of their tower and they're like, no, 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 don't touch my paradigm. Like you can't, if you mess with anything that I've built here, it's going to be revealed as something that can just topple over with a light breeze. You know, I'm curious, what are like, what are specific names or newspapers or news sites that you guys well, so Stephen, like, wh- where do you typically visit on a weekly basis to give you that wide-ranging, you know, across-the-spectrum kind of reporting or opinions? Okay, so I'm going to present to you the two people that I probably listen the most to, and I think they're about as polar opposites as you can get. Now, um, eh, maybe not the most polar opposite, but my main source of news is if i'm reading a paper it's the wall street journal if i'm listening to any sort of independent journalism i love tim pool i love tim pool because i think he does a really good job offering a or trying to offer a fairly moderate interpretation of news he in the last election was like a hardcore bernie bro but individ you know independent journalist and he's since gone more and more and more libertarian, but he's still like left-leaning libertarian. But he has a really good perspective of someone that has kind of been in the more progressive world and doesn't tolerate lies. So he goes hard against everyone currently in our in our seat, but this would be very difficult for someone that is I would say more like liberal to maybe be able to digest because right now in the current sphere of news, he is particularly hard on Biden. So anyone coming into that kind of without spending the last couple of years seeing his journalism would probably think that he's like some super conservative Republican, but he is absolutely not. He's just like right now, Everything is anti-Trump. That's fine. You can read that. I'm going to go anti-Biden. And he still does hit pieces on Trump. And he's kind of in this weird, like, well, here, here's how it is. You know? So I, I really like Tim Pool. He's also just like a cool guy, interesting personality. He does a lot of interviews with like the in quote taboo people. You know, right now there's the big question about like the Proud Boys and if they're a white supremacist group and anything like that. And instead of just blindly claiming that the leader is a white supremacist, he decided, I'm just going to invite him onto my show and I'll just interview him. Then they had a great conversation and that's that. And then, you know, 
he was on Joe Rogan a couple years ago, or maybe last year. And I think that's where he got a lot of popularity. And he railed Twitter. He was on there with Jack Dorsey. And just that was episode was wild. Yeah, incredible. I remember. And that's, yeah. I, think, I think that is a great <laughs> representation that Joe Rogan podcast. I'm going to link that actually. The Joe Rogan podcast with Tim Pool is a great representation of who he is. He's not mm. afraid to rail people and ask hard questions. And even when he was interviewing the Proud Boy guys, you know, he's like, hey, here's something that I know the media is lying about concerning you. But here's something where I think that the evidence is stacked against you. And he called him out and was like, I want you to address this. Mm. He's not trying to make friends. He's just trying to tell a story, the story of what's happening. And I, and I really appreciate that. So mm. I have a lot of respect for him. I consume a lot of Tim Pool. On the other side, a organization that I think is a joke is the Young Turks. Very, very um, left-leaning news organization i think there's predominantly youtube that's kind of where they got their fame but i forced myself to listen to their show just to understand that perspective and every now and again i mean the people that i don't like they'll make a fairly good point and you're like okay i gotta check myself they're not i think that's very important because you can look at someone that you disagree with and when they make a decent point it makes you tip, take a step back and be like, okay, this isn't a crazy person. There is some connection between us, right? We have some shared reality. I think we've been so indoctrinated into thinking that there are these two camps and they're so big that fraying, straying from them is a mistake. And you, know, you, you should vote along party lines because a third party vote will is just a vote for the quote unquote enemy and and sort of same thinking with like how we i think that's part of what sort of poisoned the idea of objective journalism is that there's sort of if you're aligned with a certain party there's a narrative that you have to to continue because it's if you don't do that you're undermining that party and you're benefiting your quote unquote enemy and i think like even in the realm in the realm of voting, I wish more people who thought they, who were just disgusted with both candidates didn't vote, or if they wanted to vote third party, they didn't worry about sort of benefiting the other party. Instead, they just voted third party. And right. I think if enough, it seems like there's actually, especially today, considering our choices. I mean, I know loads of Democrats who don't like Biden and they know it's a joke and they know the DNC railroaded Bernie and they, mm -hmm. you know, and they're pissed about it, but they're going to vote for him because right. they think they have to. Um, and of course, you know, same goes for Trump. And so if, wouldn't it be amazing if more of the populace just sort of voted based on their conscience and voted on sort of what they really truly thought would be best for themselves personally and for their community rather than sort of what we've been led to believe is, is best for these parties that we can't diverge from. I think it would send a message, you know, it might, it would take time to erode that power, but it would certainly send a message over time. And, you know, it's almost like we just need to unplug from, from sort of the media bias. And I mean, Christ, maybe it would be better if we all stopped consuming so much of it, honestly. Right. I mean, it's I consume so much of it all the time and I think it's important, but you know, 
I don't know, this conversation is actually making me think like maybe we should all just unplug and like kind of take Henning's right. and think about how things actually impact our daily lives. Because then you're you're unplugging from the exact incentive structure that Kat, you've you've mentioned a couple times, like their right. incentive now is to get click throughs so that their ad rates go up. Like mm-hmm. that's how they make their money at this point. Nobody subscribes to a newspaper anymore. That would be a waste of money when I have CNN available on my Twitter feed 24 seven. So right. an actual unplugging approach and saying, you know, I'm not going to engage in your, your petty little, your, uh, your political warring and, you know, just bearing down on this is how my life is. And as far as I can tell the policies that are working for me, they work for me. And if they work against me, then we'll figure something out. I think what it also reveals, and I'll just drop this here because I actually want to get back to cat. What are the specific channels or networks or sources that you intentionally dig into? But I think we should have a discussion about what I think is like the ultimate political sickness of America right now is that we've all been duped to thinking that the federal government is the end all be all. And, and now we hardly don't even care about state government, especially local government. Like you get your ballot in the next two weeks and you're not going to recognize any other names besides probably the presidential candidates and those running for governor of your state. But, you know, you you start to, you start to vote for like your county auditor, and you're like, oh, I I have no idea. I'm just gonna pick one, I guess. Well, and that's just it. People go, all right, R R R R R R R, and then yep, right. the other person in the booth next door goes, uh, D D D D D D D. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's ridiculous. But I think I think that's that's where the the sickness lies is that we've been duped into thinking that the federal government is where our energy belongs and hardly anyone realizes that the you know the pyramid the base of the pyramid should really be the local government because you're actually electing say the sheriffs that are actually covering your hundreds of acres of whatever your county is or you're actually electing the people who are going to serve as judge next time you get a ticket you know like Right. The, those are the people you should care about the most because they're so much closer to your life. Yes. And I think this is very important. The closer you are to the government in action, the more accountability that those elected people have, which I think is huge. Right. So I, I want to lay a couple things that are still foundations, even though I'm really diving into and, and looking into some of my beliefs. One of my key foundational beliefs is that the federal government, like you were saying, is not the you know end all. I do not believe in a big government. I believe in a smaller government. More so than federal, I believe in local government. And then beyond that, like anything in the private sector, I think is almost always <laughs> better than something government funded. Mm. And so talking about you it's know, just more efficient. And again, that more comes efficient. back to incentives. And here's, yeah. and here's here's the hard, hard truth. Programs cost money. Right. Everybody wants a program for something free. And, and we don't tackle it like, okay, let's talk about this one thing. We get this huge umbrella 
proposal. And it's like, we want to do all of this at once. That will never work. It'll never happen. So if you want to talk about some sort of government program, let's pick one very specific thing. Let's talk the finances. What I love about the private sector is that it always specializes. It's this little niche thing. It can take off. And what really I like about Henning's thinking about, okay, maybe I should just kind of ignore the political world and focus in my community. Because if you are, this is where my libertarian mindedness kind of shines. And that's why I want to lean more towards that. Like us three are very capable individuals. If we invest our time in our communities and our, our friends and our family, instead of being focused on this big picture thing, we can enact change that we want to see. We can have more impact, certainly. more impact, yeah. like true impact. Not, I'm going to vote for this person because I think he's going to do this. Why? Why don't you go do it? I think just to comment on your your thoughts on big government and versus sort of the private sector in delivering solutions, I think what's frustrating is, and it, and again, it's the incentives that politicians face. They have to make promises to their constituents and saying, well, I think where I actually should take a hands-off approach isn't really something that you campaign on. <laughs> the big like Fair. you know they don't right but like it would be great if, if this is good the practical i mean often sort of practical solutions are sort of bland and what you're really looking at is how do we how do we get out of the way of of business so that they can compete more and drive down the prices of you know whatever prescription drugs or something like that you know but instead a politician has is incentivized to say, no, we're going to pass this bill and we're going to spend X amount of money. And don't worry, we're only going to tax this tiny minority of people that you don't really care about and they can handle it. And we won't think about the practicality of any of that. So again, it's, I think it's people face incentives <laughs> and they're, well, it's true. you know, and, and so then, so then you have to think about, well, how can we, you know, our founders obviously did a very good job of trying to come up with a system that, that sort of checked that kind of power. And I wonder if, if there's almost more we could do um, to sort of, to change the incentives that politicians face. Right. And maybe it's more term limits. You know, I mean, I haven't yes. thought this through that far. Term limits, but. great. Now, this is a very interesting point that uh, Henning, you might be familiar with. I think uh, Jason Stapleton brought it up a bit ago. The problem with the structure of the check and balances is that anytime some new program arises or some new need in quote of the government arises. There is this kind of understanding that we need checks and balances, but instead of allocating that to an already existing branch of government, they think eh, that might give too much power to that branch. So let's just create a new branch of government. Or a commission, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> Maybe not a new branch. So then it just right, actually you know, makes more. Or, yeah, or administration. Yeah. And typically right. it's yeah. under the executive umbrella. Right. 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 And then it just leads to more bureaucracy. Right. So yeah. finding that balance, I think, is great. Like, we don't mm. need more programs. We don't need more commissions. We don't need more branches. Like, there's already checks and balances. Maybe we just need to allocate things better. Like, mm. Thoughts on that, Henning, since you're kind of in that? Oh, boy. I mean, I don't know if I have any immediate thoughts. Um, 
I don't want to simplify oversimplify and just be like, yeah, it's, it's too much burn it down, you know, but well, no, not at all. I'm definitely not um, anarchist. I, I, joke about, little, I joke about being I, anarchist, but I have a, I, I have a surprisingly uh, subtle streak of anarchy in me. I, you, <laughs> that might come out over the course of this show, but uh, I feel it. Mm. <laughs> oh, do you? I'm so yeah. glad. Well, okay. So Kat, I'm, I'm curious. Sorry. I'm Steven. I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm accidentally deflecting your question, but I, I don't know if I have any thoughts to add beyond. Yes, I agree. Stop, stop growing government programs and just leave it alone. Cause they're not sol- They don't, it doesn't seem like they're solving anything. I think there, there are some, you know, executive administrations that are probably okay remaining the like the national voice on you know air traffic safety i'm kind of okay with that yeah that's Um, fine like they keep planes from crashing and i'm i'm sure businesses would find a way to do it if that was allocated to the private sector which also exists um certain uh airports and certain towers are contractor towers um for instance the airport there in bozeman is a contractor tower it's not operated by the FAA um but it is regulated by the FAA whereas the Lo- Billings Logan International Airport in Billings is actually operated by the government as well so like okay it's possible to continue to grow that that contractor model but at the same time like you know there are some things i'm okay with a little bit of oversight with something like that which it might be a, an interesting tension but uh Kat, I'm curious to pivot a little bit. I'm curious to hear what what you're thinking tonight. You know, Steven's coming off of episode one, starting episode two and being like, mm, I might have been a little too extreme. Like, what's your reaction to that? And also, how do you, what have you been thinking about over the last week as it pertains to where we left our last episode? Well, as I mentioned, I think it's rational to take the approach that you outlined in the last episode um, mm-hmm. of sort of, and correct me if I'm oversimplifying it, but sort of like disengaging. I think there was, there was a, a lack of nuance to the way I came out of right. the gate on that one. I think if I was going to be allowed to voice that in a more proper way, it's actually kind of what we've been talking about all night tonight is essentially like the stuff that's relevant to me happens a lot closer to home than anything going on in Washington, D.C. for me. So mostly what I do not care about is that kind of high-level stuff. And I, I actually do do my work to you know, study my local candidates for sheriff or for county auditor or something. I actually do the work around my locality and will spend you know, a fraction of that energy on researching my my votes available to me in the state and i put five to zero percent into caring about federal action or federal uh election okay so here's an example of that and why that's important right now on the montana ballot there is uh what is it it's initiative 118 and proposition 190 about legalization of i believe it's recreational marijuana yeah, and, then and the defining one, the legal use, legal age use. A lot of people are going to vote yes because they like weed. A lot of people are going to vote 
No, because they don't like it. I do not know where I stand on that. Not because I'm against marijuana use, but because I don't know if it's good for the state of Montana. And I've seen a lot of people that I respect say, yes, you should vote for it. I've seen people I respect say, vote for one, don't vote for the other. And I've seen people that I really respect say, don't vote for either. And these are all people that are either working in the medical marijuana field, are active users of it legally or illegally, or um, you know, not, not opposed to it. And I think those mm-hmm. are important perspectives. Right. So I'm left now trying to weigh, well, shoot, what is best for Montana? It's very difficult. And I think a lot of people are going to make a poor yeah. decision on that vote. Well, that's, that's an interesting way to frame it too. Like I can tell that you, you know, your, your paradigm has shift, shifted slightly from how would legal recreational marijuana use available to 18 year olds in Montana, how would that affect me? Like the individual take on it versus, you know, what's actually best for my community? What would, would this substance be okay to be present? in a legal way or regulated or taxed or well exactly and that's what's really important to me is as someone that is very invested in capitalism and entrepreneurial pursuits i have a higher weighing on the opinions of the people that are in the business of medical marijuana people that Mm -hmm. have started their own businesses working in medical marijuana doing it legally and their pursuits right so what is best for fellow entrepreneurs i think is very important Mm. for me Mm -hmm. because i am not going to use it whether it's legal or illegal it's not my jam whether it's legal or legal i don't really care per se but i do care how it affects business people interesting I haven't followed it closely enough to have an opinion, unfortunately. I, think, I actually, asked you about it. I was I like, think, do you have any idea what's going yeah, on? And I don't yet. <laughs> and I will say, and maybe I, I think it's super rational to focus more on sort of your local issues and to pay attention to and be active in the government that immediately impacts you and your community. Mm-hmm. Um and I've done a very poor job of that since I've been in Montana because <laughs> I'm I'm still oh. just reading about California and the Bay Area and sort of the national okay. circus. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've been like, you know, I've got some homework to do in the next like Well, I've lived in Montana. I've lived in Montana my whole life. Yeah. Granted, I haven't really been able to vote that long in the scheme of things, but I've been lazy about it. And really in the recent years is when I've kind of become invested in politics, but I'm, I'm guilty of it. Right. So spending that time is really important. And I think a perspective that's a healthy one to have, and a lot of people will disagree with this. The president of the United States of America does not have that much power in the scheme of things. And where I want to go with this is that Everyone this is going to be a case to make, my man, because I disagree. Okay. He's either the most powerful man in the world or woman. Right. Or- and in many ways, <laughs> he is with some of the powers that he has. But I think where people fail is that a lot of people are so gung-ho to either praise everything that the president does or critique everything that the president does. And what's very interesting is that Congress always gets a pass. <laughs> yeah. Nobody holds Congress and the Senate accountable, truly. 
they can be like, oh, they're not passing bills and whatnot. But it's like Trump did this, Trump did this, or Obama did this, Obama did this. That's true. Yeah. Mm. And, the, and Congress consistently gets the pass. Well, I think I think that's easy to do because when both the legislature and the executive are uh, beholden to party conventions behind them, I think, you know, Obama is a human being, but he's also a figurehead at that point, right? Like right. he's a figurehead that either becomes your de facto savior or your de, de facto scapegoat. Right. Your you you know, your <laughs> your crucified criminal versus your crucified savior depending on what side of the aisle we'll see and then it's it's even baked into the language. Like you say what side of the aisle are you on when it comes to the president? But the aisle doesn't exist in the White House. It exists in Congress. Exactly. <laughs> right? Which is very, very, yes, it's very, very interesting. It's all, it's all intertwined. I will say, though, that sort of there's been an ascendance of sort of what's, what's considered the rogue president. Um, oh, yeah. And by oh, that, yeah. I mean, like, I oh, mean, yeah executive orders right mm -hmm. where you can just yep. sort of bypass congress yep. and that has grown um yep. leviathan as sort of a, as it's known that's grown over the last few decades 9-11 was a huge catalyst for sort of ushering yeah. that progress this, forward this is this is where i was going to go to disagree with torna and i mm -hmm. think the president is probably still the most powerful person um because we've given him permission to do this over however many you know, I, I say him, like we we've given them permission just as a figure yeah. to do that. And I think right. also the fact that uh I, I can't pinpoint pinpoint a date, I'm sure Kat could for us, but the fact that Congress has essentially written their power to declare war over to the sitting president is huge. Like Congress hasn't declared war since World War II, as far as I'm aware. Um, and yet we're constantly embroiled in militaristic pursuits. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that's another, that's another stance that I have, is I'm very anti-war. That is a foundation of where I'm at. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a huge, a huge issue. Yeah. And this is an interesting point, and I think it might be Thomas Sowell that I first saw this, but I mean... He kind of always is is touting this, but it's very much true that anytime something happens, we give the government some sort of temporary power, right? Something happens and we're like, okay, well, because of this event, we're going to let the president have this temporary power. Mm, Patriot Act. Uh, yeah. How often are those temporary powers ever given back? Exactly. That's how Leviathan grows. Exactly. Yeah. Oof. And Congress has slowly just sort of abdicated, right? They've just kind yep. of given it up. Right. It's easier to hate the 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 emperor and the king than it is the republic. Because yeah. like there's there's a weird getting mad at Congress in a way, I think at least the way we're taught civics in high schools now, like getting like being mad at Congress is an awkward kind of indictment of yourself considering we're taught that, you know, Congress represents you and your state and your district and your value, you know, like they're your representative on the federal stage. So indicting Congress feels 
personal and we don't like to feel that we have any responsibility in the the uh, bread and circuses going on <laughs> up there you know but i think it's important that we do because i agree I think it's way better to say you know what we as in the state of montana made a mistake putting this person in congress because they don't represent us right so that's an actually this is something that i want to look into because i do not have any constructive thoughts on this can i offer a resource uh, especially for montana stuff um i think you'd both be interested in it i was turned on to a podcast by one of my coworkers called shared state and it's a podcast about what's driving montana's 2020 elections and where the outcomes could lead us and it's in association with montana free press montana public radio and yellowstone public radio and okay. uh Man, if it's not specific to some things that we talk about a lot, like especially in Montana, you hear a political ad, they're probably talking about public lands, um, which I don't know how much of a conversation that is in California, Cat, but th- those those are the kind of things that if you're not if you're not paying attention, you know, a lot of, a lot of language is wrapped around each candidate for public right. lands, specifically in Montana, and. Right. Uh, yeah, my so work anyway. has led me to learn a lot more about all of that. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. If there's one thing that I've learned from local political ads on YouTube, <laughs> all of the candidates are Satan. <laughs> and Bullock has a lot of money to run ads against Danes. <laughs> I mean, it's like <laughs> not also true. <laughs> In fact, I have to say, and I'm not saying literally which way I'm voting, but I. Every time I hear an anti-Steve Danes ad, Steve Danes is how it always starts. I literally yeah. look at my phone. I'm like, fuck you. I'm voting for Steve Danes. Like, <laughs> stop yelling at me about this. <laughs> I'm so over it. <laughs> well, it's yeah. funny, too, though, but people do have a natural tendency to pursue things that are like, in quote, the taboo, right? Right. And so this is, I think this is a great point to kind of end the night with. But a great segue into talking about the most recent censorship story Uh, because of the fact that a big analysis just came out and it's projected that because of the censorship of the Hunter Biden um, laptop and kind of like the October surprise for this year, traffic traffic for that story was like double to tripled what it probably would have been. Yeah, for sure. Right. So well, and there's more to come too. So, I mean, that whole thing is going to keep right. Drip, yeah. Drip, drip, yeah. Drip. We're 14 yeah. days away from election day. <laughs> right. At the time of recording, at least there's, you know, there's a lot of bombshells still to go off. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's just sort of added, in my opinion, a bit more validity to what we all sort of, or I shouldn't say validity. It added more context and color to sort of a story that we already were all pretty well aware of. Mm, yeah about biden and and the influence peddling so this is this is important it wasn't a big revelation in my mind well we say that but there is a perspective of a lot of people that i love great people that i think are so again in these bubbles that they're like that is absolutely not true there's no way that's true that's a lie that's false (laughs) biden is biden's son is you know that's that's all fake and I think a perspective to have is to say, no, this isn't fake. A lot of evidence is stacking up damning Hunter Biden, but this isn't 
unusual. Okay, he got caught, but this is a function of how a lot of dirty politics works, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So don't. It's good. We're not. We're not just crucifying Hunter Biden because he's a Biden, right? And it's some weird partisan thing, even though it's being used as one, right? This mm. information has been sat on for God knows how long, right? Like right. months and months, waiting to release it in October. Yeah. It's all part of this dirty politics scheme. And but then that you, doesn't take away from the validity of it. It doesn't take away <laughs> right. from the validity of it. Yeah. And then on the other side of it, we've got Trump's tax returns and things like that, right? There's a lot of misinformation around that, but I think there's validity in looking into it. Sure. Right. And then you have, you know, more hit pieces on and, and one censored and the other is not correct both you could argue were obtained potentially illegally well and this is what i really want to discuss <laughs> next week yeah. is the implications of claiming that you can censor something because it was illegally acquired oh that's yeah i mean because the ramifications of that is massive Sure. And it's completely hypocritical, too, because, I Correct. mean, throughout the last four years, <laughs> there's been things that stories leaked that were completely unsubstantiated. And we've now learned were actually the product of real Russian disinformation, not <laughs> what they were claiming to be. Exactly. And, and, you know, that goes unchecked. And then we all just stop talking about it because all of a sudden the facts are revealed and it doesn't fit the narrative. And we just, you know, no, we didn't waste millions of taxpayer dollars running down this rabbit hole but right anyway, that's for another episode, I think it is for <laughs> another episode. before we sign off cat i am still dying you want to know what i what, new <laughs> what, sources you, what I you read and what you listen to yeah. yeah for sure and i have another like closing thought too but um i like uh torna the wall street journal is my main source of news and the john bachelor show which i love you introduced me to him. Do you listen to him now? I do not regularly. Oh, okay. And I and I should. <laughs> but his voice is so delightful. He's wonderful. And it's a, he's a great narrator. <laughs> yeah. I would suggest giving it a listen. Yeah. The John Bachelor show is fantastic for like daily news and he covers a lot of international stuff, which is one of the reasons why I enjoy him. And um, Oh, that's nice. Great, that's nice. Great, great book reviews on Fridays and or excuse me over the weekend and then Fridays he also has an astronomy segment, which is really cool. But so the Wall Street Journal, John Bachelor, John Bachelor's a Republican. So he's he's a lovely man, though. And he's very reasonable. Um, Isn't that a bummer that you have to say that? Yeah, I have to have some sort oh, he's, of but, but he's a lovely man. But please man. don't hate him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he's brilliant. But um, but and then to sort of to balance that and National Review, which is also pretty conservative. OK, um, I love the National Review. <laughs> and Kat and I always are sharing articles and we're like, man, this is such a great piece. And it gets a bad rap. Well, in some circles. In some circles. Yeah. But they've got some pretty good stuff. Oh, they have great scholars that work for them. But to counter all of that, I regularly consume the BBC also, again, because you get some international news. They're pretty, mm. like, predictably anti-Israel. And so that kind of has a certain predictable tint to most of their stories. At least you get an international perspective. And then... I'll read the New York Times like opinion section and I'll read the Washington Post as well. 
It's my my father always yeah, said the Jeff Bezos post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> my my father always said, "Know your enemy," which I'll just say I don't consider people who think differently than me to be my enemy. <laughs> he would, but mm. I don't. <laughs> um, but I took that to sort of mean like broaden your horizons, know sort of what, be able to have like enter into a political debate or just you know a, a debate on sort of what is happening culturally within your community and and know both perspectives or be you know decently versed on both perspectives so i think it's important to do that and that also you know if you're reading something that's pretty right wing quote unquote or left wing quote unquote eventually there's there's some sort of truth to be found in between those two extremes so i think being able to take the time to pursue those perspectives is important but again rational ignorance is real most people don't have the time to invest in that. And so the fact that our gatekeepers are, the fact that our gatekeepers are biased makes it just, it, it's a huge hurdle to get over. And, and I think it will have to come to some sort of dismantling. Is that the word I want to say? But it's going to have to change, you know, sort of like this. I, and maybe we're reaching the crescendo with this upcoming election i mean we've been boiling pretty hot for a while now and and maybe we're going to get to a point where people are just completely sick of it and they don't trust any of these outlets anymore and they don't want to tune in to fox or msnbc and you know maybe there will be some sort of like cultural revolt against that i had hoped that was going to happen after trump was elected <laughs> i kind of thought mm. people would just be distant you know just sort of just feel like it, there was so much chaos and this person didn't really represent them and neither did Hillary Clinton. And I sort of thought there'd be this great libertarian awakening where people realize, well, wait a second, why are we giving so much power to these individuals and to this bureaucracy? Like, let's pull back from that and have oh. more of a community focused grassroots effort. And you were thinking that, that after the results came out or before? Like in the midst of it, I and and yeah, and after I, I like I really kind of thought, you know, but then that's the whole other discussion of what ensued after that. But yeah. obviously, that that isn't what happened, right? We kind of we, we both dug in, both sides dug in really hard. And I wonder if if Biden wins, there's a the Republicans went through this kind of internal conflict after Trump was elected. Yeah, there's going to be an internal conflict on the left because there are moderates still and there's a radical wing of the party that's sort of trying to I mean, it's obvious they're sort of, you know, I think they made some concession with or, you know, Biden made some concession with them and is probably willing to implement some of their ideas. Um, but he has to be the figurehead, to use your word, Henning, because they didn't think they could get, you know, Sanders elected. But there's going to be a lot of infighting. So I wonder if, you know, will that party become totally sort of disgusted <laughs> with what it devolves into? And mm. and the right kind of went through that. And I think the the constant prodding from the left over the last four years actually ended up sort of uniting them, oddly, uniting the right, I mean. But, you know, we'll see. Maybe Maybe after this next election, it'll that great awakening I was hoping for, maybe it'll be, maybe it'll happen after this because there will yeah. be so much infighting, but. It was, it was hard to see a great third wave awakening <laughs> coming 
after I, I God, I even forget the guy's name, but he couldn't even he didn't even know what Aleppo was. You know that? Oh, <laughs> oh God, Gary Johnson. Gary, yeah, no, right. Well, that's what, what I mean when I said joke of a man. <laughs> yeah, totally. Libertarians on foreign policy is always just kind of like excruciating. But right, right. sorry, but anyway. Aleppo. Yeah. <laughs> I like what you're going where you're going there. This this might be me uh showing my cards a little bit to my 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 anarchist streak, but I personally especially on the federal level again, I, I have to delineate because federal is where I think the most bread and circuses is happening, but the more infighting there is amongst a party and then there the more like fighting between the parties that happens i almost i would rather them not agree on anything and have to take months and months to pass anything hell yeah oh yes <laughs> <Because Less>. totally <laughs> the gridlock like get those gears just completely halted and just overheat that engine <laughs> yeah exactly the less they do the better right so and that's I often mean, like that's often a critique of our form of government is that it is too sluggish because there are all these that way, damn checks and balances, way. you know, and right. I it always should subscribe. be that way. Of course. Yeah. Which is good for big policy, right? But bad for decision-making. So a great example is with SpaceX versus NASA. SpaceX is so successful because they can make a decision, implement it. If it doesn't work, change it. Boom. NASA, they make a decision. It doesn't work. And then they keep trying to make that decision work and then to come up with a new decision and then get it passed, blah, 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 blah. So that's why I don't like the idea of like government being in any sort of innovation. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, exactly. Thank God we have a private sector Oof. that can innovate, right? Yeah. <laughs> so fast. We don't need fast and efficiently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There we go. I, uh, to wrap us up, I, you got, you made me think of a quote cat and it's something along the lines of I'm neither left wing nor right wing. I'm interested in the bird in the middle. I love that. I love like you're pointing out like moderates on in either party that are kind of like struggling with what are becoming the bizarre figurehead. Moderate Republicans being like Trump is really what we wanted. Yeah. No. The school conservatives are not happy with him. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Right. The right. Traditionally moderate. Yeah, I guess I'm interested in the bird in the middle. I like that phrase. I can get behind that. I think it's important that we stand strong for that mindset. Thank you for joining us on The Whiskey Bench. If you would do us a favor, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about it on social media. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest, all at Whiskey Bench Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remember, always drink responsibly. And cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Thank you.